0: Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day that you have made like the psalmist admonishes us, we want to rejoice and be glad in it. As your people, as the children of God, we have ample reason to rejoice. We have ample reason to be glad. As we think about all that you have done for us, our Heavenly Father, in calling us, in sending your own Son, Jesus, into the world for our salvation to die on a cross for our sins and to rise again for our justification. And then in sending your spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith. God, we are so grateful, we are so overjoyed today by the good news of the gospel, of all that you have done for us in Christ. God, today we pray that as we spend time in your word considering this prophecy that's some 2,500 years old, that God, you would use these words on this page to speak truth and to speak life into our hearts, into our souls. God, we are not here at church just as a social club. We are not here at church just as information gatherers trying to learn some new facts about the Bible. We are here as your people desiring to hear from you and relate to you and desiring to live our lives for you and for your glory and for your kingdom. So God, we ask you, we plead with you that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your holy word. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please go ahead and grab a seat. Well, obviously, we're taking a break this morning from our series through the books of Samuel, and the reason for that has already been announced. It's because Today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday begins what's called Holy Week, which includes Good Friday, as Seth just mentioned, and then culminates a week from now on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Palm Sunday marks the day that Jesus entered into the holy city of Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey, announcing himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, or deliverer, or savior of the people of God. And it's called Palm Sunday because in the Gospels, we read that the crowds put their branches in the air and they waved them around like they just don't care. That was so lame. I wasn't going to do that, but Ryan was so adamant that I shared that. It's his favorite joke. He said, do that one. So lame. We'll scratch that for next year. Definitely not going to repeat that. The truth of the matter, though, is that the the crowds did wave palm branches in the air. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And other uh, people in the crowd, they actually laid these palm branches on the road so that the donkey that Jesus was on could pass over these palm branches. And this is why in many churches around the world and across history, people, and often it's the children in the church services, would carry palm branches during this particular service, which, of course, serves as a beautiful and very cool visual, uh, more so in places like Minnesota and not so much here in Santa Barbara. We have our fair share of palm trees here in California. The reason why our scripture that we selected for today is coming to us from Zechariah 9 rather than one of the gospel tellings of the events of Palm Sunday is because Zechariah 9 is, listen, the key to understanding what is going on in the Gospels on Palm Sunday. Let me say that again. Zechariah 9 is the key to understanding what is going on on Palm Sunday. Let me explain. In both Matthew's and John's accounts of Palm Sunday, they directly quote Zechariah 9.9 explaining that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this young donkey is a fulfillment of the prophecy that is contained here. Here's Matthew's version of Palm Sunday, Matthew 21, 4 through 5, which Pastor Ryan read for us to start our service. It says in verse 4, this took place, meaning the uh, triumphal entry, it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Saying, and then he quotes directly from Zechariah 9 9, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So notice that Matthew is looking at these events, as did all the early Christians, and he's saying, Look, what we witnessed here is the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet. And he's talking about Zechariah. John does the same thing in his gospel. This is John 12, 14 and 15. It says this, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And he he quotes an abridged version of Zechariah 9.9. He says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What this means for us is that The crowds of people who declared Jesus to be their king on Palm Sunday did so because they interpreted the events that they witnessed as the direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And so, as we consider what is said about the coming king here in Zechariah 9, we will gain greater insight into who Jesus is and all that Jesus came to accomplish. In light of this, today's sermon title is The Promised King. Now, the book of Zechariah is a prophetic book. Um, In the very first verse in the book of Zechariah, we read this. It says, in the eighth month and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, So it begins with this announcement that that there's a word that's come from the Lord to a prophet named Zechariah. He's a prophet and this is his prophecy. Now, the ministry of a prophet had two main parts. Most people think of the second part, but there were two main parts to their ministry. The first is that a prophet would generally be raised up by the Lord when his people had gone astray, when they were wayward, so he would be raised up by God to call the people of God to repentance and to renew their faith in the Lord by obeying his word. So they would say, hey, we're in sin. We need to repent and we need to obey God and obey God's word if we hope to experience blessing. The second feature of a prophet's ministry is, again, more of what we generally think of when we talk about Prophecy. It's the fact that prophets were given divine insight into future events. Sometimes they were events that were in the near future, sometimes they were events that were in the distant future, and oftentimes they were given both. But it was somebody who predicted the future. So Zechariah here is a prophet of the Lord to God's people, and he prophesies about 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And Zechariah is ministering during a very interesting time in the history of God's people. A small number of Jews had returned from the Babylonian exile, where God's people were taken to Babylon, and they were removed from their holy land. A small number of these Jews now have been sent back to the holy land, and they're in Jerusalem. The city, as they arrived there, was still lying in ruins. The wall wall of the city had been toppled. The beautiful temple that Solomon had constructed was a rubble heap. Drought and blight had ravaged the land. Judah, at this point in her history, was just a Persian vassal state. They weren't even an independent nation. Not to mention that all the surrounding uh, uh, kingdoms around Judah at this time had leaders who were harassing the people in Jerusalem and were thwarting their efforts at rebuilding and reestablishing their capital city. And so the general mood in Jerusalem when Zechariah prophesied was gloomy and dismal. The people there were asking questions like this. How will things ever get better? How can we ever experience the good that God promised to his people? Who will deliver us and save us from our peril? It's the same kinds of questions that the Jews were asking themselves 500 years later during the ministry of Christ. Instead of being a Persian vassal state, now God's people were under Roman occupation. And they felt terrorized by this. Their taxes were too high and the people were generally impoverished and poor and needy. And they were asking themselves questions like this. How will things ever get better? How can we ever experience the good that God has promised to his people? Who will deliver us and save us from our peril? And family, it's the same thing that many in our society are asking today. In the wake of last week's tragic shootings in Nashville, where three children and three adults were killed senselessly, people in our own country are asking What's wrong with us? How will things ever get better? How can we ever experience blessing and peace on earth? Who can we turn to for answers to save us from our peril? Well, Zechariah answers these questions, and he does it in two ways. His first answer is that Zechariah called the people to return to the Lord. This is Zechariah 1, 1 through 4. This is how he begins his prophecy. It says in the 8th month in the 2nd year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, "The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts." Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So family, listen, the immediate answer to God's people in Zechariah's day was to return to the Lord. The root cause of their troubles was, listen, their own sinfulness and disregard for God's ways. And the same is true for our day and age. Everybody in America has a theory as to what's behind the violence and the rage and the polarization of our times. Some people say it's the guns, or it's transphobia, or it's a lax criminal justice system, or it's poor parenting. Or it's the desensitization of our collective consciences through music and movies and video games. Or a hundred other things. But guys, we need to understand that in our day, just like in Zechariah's day, the root cause of all of our troubles is our own sinfulness and our disregard of God's ways. All of God's ways are righteousness and justice. If we as humans perfectly lived out God's word, guess what? There would be peace on earth and there would be objective human flourishing. But here's the problem. The problem is nobody perfectly obeys God's word. All of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, all of us sin. All of us hurt other people and we contribute to the disarray that we experience. In this world. And so the Lord, in his grace, gave Zechariah a second answer to the questions that the people were asking. Again, questions like How will things ever get better? How can we experience the good things that God intends for us? Who will save us? And that second answer is found in the second half of the book, which is chapters 9 through 14, and it brings us to our text. This morning, simply put, the only long-term and ultimate solution to the world's problems would be found in a future king whom God would send to save us. Look again at verse 9. The prophet writes this, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As desperate as the world felt to the Jews in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago, Zechariah says to these suffering people, he says, guess what? There is coming a day that you will rejoice greatly where you will shout aloud. Their mourning would be turned to dancing and their sorrow to laughter. What would bring about this change? What would usher in this new day? Answer, the arrival of a promised king. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Now let me pause here for a moment and make a few connections for us. We as a church family recently have been studying the books of Samuel. And just about a month ago, we learned about how God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 made a covenant with King David. And as he made this covenant with King David, he promised David that his throne would be established forever. It would be an eternal kingdom. This is 2 Samuel 7.16. And your house, God says, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 became the foundation of the Jewish hopes and the Jewish expectations that their Messiah or deliverer would be a future Davidic king. A king from the line of David. As a result, a whole body of prophecy begins developing in the Old Testament, all pointing forward to a Davidic king who would save God's people. And Zechariah here adds his voice to this chorus of prophetic lines. Behold, your king is coming to you. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews are desperate for this king to come. And by the time Palm Sunday arrives, many of the people already have their own suspicions that maybe, just maybe, this prophet from that no-name town Nazareth, maybe he might just be that king. Maybe he would be the ultimate son of David who God would send to restore the kingdom of David and expand its rule over all the nations. We see this, this suspicion in places in the Gospels, for example, here's Matthew 12:23. Jesus, in this text, he heals a demon-oppressed man who was blind and he was mute. These are works that only God could do or maybe somebody sent by God. And here's what Matthew 12:23 says. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They're wondering, maybe this is the coming king. This explains why. When the people saw this Jesus, who healed the sick, who fed thousands and thousands of people in the wilderness with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, who calmed storms on the Sea of Galilee, who even raised the dead when they saw him mount a young donkey and come riding into the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, their response was to to declare him to be their king. At that moment, these crowds that were wondering, could this be, had their questions answered. They were confident that their king had come. And just like Zechariah predicted, his arrival caused great rejoicing. In Luke 19, in Luke's version of the triumphal entry, It says this in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're rejoicing. And this is really significant if you stop and think about it. Because for these people on Palm Sunday, their circumstances had not changed. They're still under Roman occupation. Nobody got a pay raise that day because Jesus rode on this donkey. Probably no marriage was healed on the spot there. So, So their circumstances had not changed And yet they're rejoicing. And the reason for that is because their king had come. And that made all the difference. Their despair was given over to rejoicing. Why? Well, because of who he is and what he came to do. In our text, and we're going to see this in a moment, he's righteous. He's humble. And he's their savior. I think this is a great reminder to all of us who call Jesus our king. Just as he came to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, if you've put your faith in Christ, then that means that he has come to you in your own lifetime. And that fact alone should cause every child of God to rejoice greatly, no matter what the circumstances of our lives may be. Because life can be hard. Amen? It can be hard. Nobody gets a pass on suffering. Just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you get a pass. Just because I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean I get a pass. We all are going to suffer. Jesus said that in this world, there would be tribulation. And we're all going to endure it. And if we focus our attention on our circumstances, particularly our hard circumstances, it'll often produce discouragement and anxiety and fear. But if we lift our eyes... And we fixate our attention on King Jesus, like Zechariah calls us to. That's what the word behold means. Behold, your king is coming to you. It'll make all the difference. Why? Well, because of who he is and what he came to do. He's righteous and humble. And family, he came to save us. So let's consider these realities together. In verse 9, we're told that this coming king is righteous. That means that he only ever does what is right and good. Imagine that. A person who only ever does what is right and good. His life conforms to the very character of God himself. His life is the complete antithesis to everything evil wrong, and destructive in the world. Speaking of Jesus, First Peter 2.22 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I said a few minutes ago that the root cause of all of our troubles is our own sinfulness and our disregard of God's ways. All of God's ways are righteousness and justice. And I said, if we as humans perfectly lived out God's word, there would be peace on earth, and non-stop blessing. But the problem is that we don't perfectly obey God's word. All of us sin. All of us hurt other people and contribute to the disarray we experience. And so this note about the coming king being righteous is like a cup of cold water on a scorching hot day. Finally, someone is coming who isn't like us who won't contribute to the hurt and the pain and the destruction of our world, but instead will bring about its healing. Righteous is he. And that brings us to the next thing. He's a savior. It says righteous and having salvation is he. Now, some of you know this, but the word salvation can also be translated as deliverance. And for the people in Zechariah's day, that's how they would have probably understood this prophecy. They would have understood that when their king came, he was going to deliver them from their foreign occupiers. And he was going to lead them into a place of blessing and flourishing. And this is the same expectation that people had in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they were looking for this very same thing. They wanted a Messiah who could deliver them from Roman occupation. A Messiah who could make them prosperous and safe and secure again. And this is why the crowds cried, Hosanna, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. Hosanna means, save we pray. Or it means, save now. It's saying, we, we, we want you to save us. We need you to save us. But you and I know on this side of the cross, and on this side of the empty tomb, that the salvation or deliverance that Jesus came to bring was beyond the wildest dreams of all of those people living under the old covenant. Jesus came to forgive their sins. And Jesus came to give eternal life. So Jesus came not just to rebuild the physical kingdom of Israel and deliver them from their their hardships for. 30 or 40 years until they die. No, no, no. Jesus came to bring them into God's eternal kingdom and deliver them from all of life's hardships forever. So Jesus is a savior. But third and finally, notice that he's also humble. He's humble. Unlike most kings and people in authority, this king is not proud. He's not boastful. He's not above the common people. This king's fundamentally different. This king actually condescends down to the level of his people. This is not typical royalty. Traveling around in luxury, dressed in the finest clothes, crowns and jewelry dripping off of them, eating scrumptious delicacies at every meal, above the fray. No, no, no. This isn't that kind of a king. This word humble can also be translated lowly, and it even carries nuances of being poor and being afflicted. What great descriptions of Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus tells us that he is gentle and he's lowly in heart. And that he actually invites all of us who are weary, all of us who are ourselves burdened down and lowly and afflicted, he invites us to come to him. He says he's gentle and he's lowly. Certainly the humility of Jesus is deeply comforting to any heart that has truly come to grips with its own sin. An awareness of our own sinfulness brings us low and removes all of our pride. We realize, man, I'm broken. Man, a lot of the problems in my family or in my life are the result of my own terrible decisions and actions and words. And so when we become aware of our own sinfulness, again, it it, it lowers us, it humbles us. And then to think, not only have we offended people around us, but more importantly, we have offended a good God who created us and loves us. It knocks us down, it brings us low, and you and I would never have the courage to approach God if he were distant and removed from us. If he behaved like typical royalty, above the fray, looking down on us. It is only because Jesus humbled himself by coming to you and by the fact that he invites us to come to him that we find the courage to do so. This morning, I wonder if there are any who find yourself hesitant to come to the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've always thought that You couldn't approach God. You look at your life and you realize if that Bible's true and what those churches talk about is true, there's no way that I could ever come to God because I've certainly done my share of wrong things. Or maybe you were raised in the church and yet you walked away. You turned your back on the things of the Lord, and actually, that makes you even more terrified of ever coming to God. Why would He want someone like me? I knew better, and I've walked away. I can never approach God. I love the words in Matthew 12 20, where Jesus fulfills another prophecy. This is from Isaiah. And we're promised that Jesus is the type of Savior of whom it can be said that a bruised reed He will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's how gentle Jesus is. I mean, think about a, a flickering candle, like on the verge of going out. I mean, if you just pass by too quickly, it will go out. And Jesus is so gentle toward those who become aware of their own sin and their own brokenness, that the way that he handles with us allows that little flame to continue to flicker. It's beautiful. That's the gentle, humble heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing thought. And this lowliness and this humility that embodies this king who is different than any other king, any other president, any other prime minister who's ever lived, was made visible even by the animal that he selected to ride into the city. Right? It's a donkey here in verse 9. Actually, it's the full of a donkey as compared to a horse. By this time in history, in this part of the world, the horse was the choice animal for kings and rulers. The horse was the advanced military machine. So coming on a young donkey would be like our president ditching the armored limousine and pulling up in a Prius. Okay, no offense to Prius owners out here, but a Prius doesn't exactly communicate strength and power, right? Like that's not, I mean, a, a Humvee, yes. A Prius, probably not so much. No, a Prius is different. A Pri, I got I to gotta be careful because probably a few of you drive Priuses, so I'm going to really be guarded here. But a Prius is about being economical, right? I mean, that's the boast, right? You look at the guy driving the Humvee and you're like, dude, what are you getting, six miles a gallon? I mean, I, I can, yeah. So it's about being economical, And saving the planet, I suppose, as well. So in its own weird roundabout way, I guess a Prius communicates peace. Like if cars could talk, I imagine a Prius saying, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And this is kind of an apt way of describing what a young donkey communicated 2,000 years ago. By coming in as a king on the back of a donkey, it did communicate his normalcy. It communicated his humility, and it also underscored that his mission, his mission of salvation, was not a mission of militarism, but it was a mission of peace. And notice that's what verse 10 is all about. We'll read it again and then reflect on it briefly. "'I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim,' which is the northern part of Israel, "'and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations.'" His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the the earth. What a beautiful passage of scripture. This verse envisions a day where weapons of war are no longer necessary. And King Jesus rules over the entire world. And there's an already not yet dynamic here in verse 10. What do I mean by that? I mean that The things that verse 10 are talking about and are describing are already being fulfilled on this side of the first coming of Jesus to some extent. But they're not yet being experienced and being fulfilled in their entirety. And they won't be until Jesus comes again and establishes his reign of righteousness. See, the Jews expected, as I said, that the Messiah would sit on David's throne and he would militarily destroy all of Israel's enemies. But now, surprisingly, God's people are being told that the Messiah's mission in the world is not one of violent conquest. The chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow, of course, were weapons of war. But unlike your typical king who would accumulate these weapons and then unleash them on his enemies, what does Jesus do? He cuts them off. Jesus did not take control of an army and destroy the Romans. Jesus cut off the weapons of war from the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ does not advance through violent conquest. No, the church advances through the spread of the gospel. Did you know that the gospel message is called the gospel of peace in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15? And the reason for that is because the gospel is a message that brings peace between people and their God and brings peace between one another. And through the gospel, Jesus right now and over the last 2,000 years has been speaking peace to the nations. This is why we as Christians are called ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador is a person who speaks on behalf of, speaks for another person, whether it's a king or a prince or a nation. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul there is saying that Jesus is using us, God is using us right now to speak to people about peace that they can experience. That through Christ they can be reconciled to God. And reconciliation is a wonderful word that speaks about peace. When two people are estranged and alienated, when they are brought back together, that's called reconciliation. They make peace. And this verse is telling us that God is using you and me as, a, as Christians, as his instruments to speak this word of peace, this offer of peace and reconciliation to the world around us. So as you and I preach the gospel, we are being used by God. Jesus is offering peace to his enemies through us. Now, significantly, it is spread, or it is through the spread of this gospel of peace that Jesus ultimately conquered the Roman Empire. In three short centuries, the gospel had spread so much throughout the Roman Empire and so powerfully that Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Notice it was not a violent takeover. It was a peaceful takeover. And from that moment on, 1,700 years ago, this gospel of peace has continued to spread onto every continent and throughout almost every nation on earth. The job is not finished. The work still needs to be done. This is why we continue to pray to Jesus to send more laborers into the harvest. This is why we emphasize frontier missions in this church. This is why we have prayer services dedicated to reaching unreached peoples because the job's not finished. But for 2,000 years, the gospel of peace has been spreading and spreading and spreading. And untold millions of hearts have been subdued by the gospel of peace. And we praise God for that. But as Christians, you and I know that this prophecy found here in verse 10 will not find ultimate fulfillment until Jesus returns again. And so, it speaks to our universal human longing for everything wrong in the world to be made right. The Hebrew word for peace here, one of my favorite Hebrew words. Every chance I get, I try to explain this word, but the Hebrew word for peace here is shalom. And the word shalom certainly speaks of speaks or speaks of peace rather from conflict but its meaning is much fuller the hebrew word speaks of completeness it speaks of the world that we are living in right now being the way that it's supposed to be the word shalom speaks of human flourishing and every single one of us and listen every single person on earth longs for that we all long for things to be the way that they ought to be. We all long for things to be just and right and fair in the world. But here we're being reminded in verse 10 that despite all of our technological advances, and we have had many, despite all of our economic initiatives and all of our political solutions, universal human flourishing will only be realized when the Messiah Jesus comes again. We too must cry with the crowds, waving their palm branches 2,000 years ago, Hosanna, for only he can save us. I want to end this morning with a line from our church's monthly email that I sent out yesterday. And this line is with regard to the tragedy in Nashville this last week. It says, so while we are crushed in spirit for the families who have lost loved ones this week, And while we're reminded of the exceeding wickedness of the world we live in, we remain hopeful in a God who reigns above it all and promises to one day make all things new. In that day, shalom will fill the heavens and the earth and all evil will be banished forever by Jesus's reign of righteousness. And so family, on this Palm Sunday... Let us join in the chorus of the crowds on that first Palm Sunday, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen? Amen.